marvelous to be back with you. I was out last Sunday, last weekend. I decided to spend four days in Northeast Baptist Hospital with pneumonia, and I really missed you. I really missed you. And uh, I want to thank Johnny White for preaching, which he always does so well, so effectively, and so cooperatively. And thank you, Johnny. And thank you for your thoughts and for your prayers and for your cards and prayer grams. I'm uh, really extremely grateful. You are loving and gracious people. It's a privilege to be your pastor and friend. I was especially moved by the deacons. They had a called meeting, and they voted 58 to 32 to pray for my recovery. And <laughs> I tell you, won't that encourage you? It's just marvelous. I was in Northeast Baptist Hospital and want to say a word of praise for them. They just took marvelous care of me in the emergency room and then in the hospital and uh, the food was good and the care was magnificent and I'm, uh, I'm grateful. Grateful for dedicated doctors and nurses and technicians and uh, just thankful for it all and I'm especially thankful uh, to be back with all of you today. Uh, some, two Sundays ago, I preached on one of the great questions of the Bible the first question that man ever asked God, and I, you may remember talking about the event of Cain and Abel, and Cain slew Abel, and God came and spoke to Cain about it, and Cain made that sarcastic, cynical statement, question, am I my brother's keeper? Well, today I want to talk about another question, which I believe to be the ultimate, the ultimate question that all of us must answer. The ultimate question, the ultimate question for us today, for each one of us individually today, for all of us collectively as a church. And it is a question that comes from the 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew in the 22nd verse. Jesus is on trial, unfair trial, unjust trial. And he's on trial in front of Pilate and a vacillating, undulating, irresolute pilot stands there not knowing what to do with Jesus. And he asks the question, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? He's asking that question about himself. He's asking others, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now, every one of us in this room has to answer that question. Every one of us has to make a decision about who Jesus is in our lives and whom we will allow him to be and what he, we will allow him to be and to do. What have you done with Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? What will you do with him? This question is unavoidable. It is inevitable. You cannot take a detour around Jesus. You have to face him and answer the question. 
What will I do? What am I doing with Jesus? You just can't get away from the inevitable Christ. Not only an inevitable question for each one of us, an eternal question, the answer to which determines not only the life we live today, but the life we live a million years from now. And where we live that life a million years from now. The inevitable Christ. You just can't erase him from life. He's, you can't avoid him. You can't ignore him. He's plowed into history. It's impossible to do. I've tried it. But for a little mental exercise, try to imagine for a moment what the world would be like if Jesus had never come. It staggers the mind. It's incomprehensible, inscrutable. What would the world be like if Jesus had never come? What would the world of of literature be like if Jesus had never come? Why, half the shelves in most of the libraries of the world would be empty. For the great works of literature are inspired by him. Tolstoy, Solzhenitsyn, Milton, Taylor Caldwell. On and on and on, limitlessly. Not only Christian books... Not only books that are specific Christian books, but books that are Christian. And I make a distinction between the two. There are Christian books that are books about Christ, about the Christian religion, about the Christian faith, about Christian ethics and all that. But there are also books like those that Tolstoy wrote and others that are Christian. They have a Christian message running through them. Because Jesus Christ has come and he has permeated all of life. And you see that penetration in the literature of the world. You can't avoid him. You can't avoid him. What would the artistic world be like if Jesus had not come? The world of art and sculpture. Why, half the museums of the world would have empty paintings, empty frames. And the unoccupied pedestals were great artistic creations by Michelangelo and Caravaggio and many others stand, but would not stand. Would not have been had it not been for Jesus. We would have no Moses. We would have no Pieta. We would have no David. Jesus is plowed into the artistic world. Ineradicable. What about the world of music? How poverty-stricken our world would be if we had no music inspired 
by the great Galilean. Incomprehensible. You can't avoid this man. You've got to do something with him. What will you do? Think about it a minute. You know the story, but just think about it a minute. In this day of such crass commercialism and promotion and the simplicity of Jesus' life in such contrast to the way we celebrate it, which is so profane in comparison to his life, a very humble home, simple peasant family, born in a stable to a virgin, grew up a little boy, working around the carpenter shop, then working with his earthly father, Joseph, humble trade, humble, simple life. Stayed there for 30 years. Worked at home 30 years. And then at 30 years of age, began walking around and bumping into people and changing their lives. When you read the Gospels, I I don't get any idea of a kind of planned crusade. I knew that God had a plan at work through it all, for he was working all things together for good, certainly, that's epitomized in the life and the ministry of Jesus. But you never get an idea of, of any sort of, of, of plan going on. He just seemed to walk around and bump into people and change their lives. He'd walk around and say a word to some blind beggar beside the road and the guy would jump up and see and forget his old coat and start following Jesus. And he'd reach out and touch a guy and suddenly he could get up and walk. And he never met a funeral procession. He didn't interrupt with a resurrection. He just told about 30, 35 little stories, little parables, some miracles. And then because of the... And one thing about Jesus that, that I need to apply more to my life, and maybe all of us do, When I read the New Testament, when I read the Gospels, the story of Jesus, I never get the feeling that he is in a hurry. Here he has three years in which to live out the plan of God and the redemption of the world. And you never have the feeling that he's wringing his hands or looking at his watch, which he didn't even have. It's interesting, isn't it, that he divided time and... He divided history into two pieces by his very birth, B.C. and A.D. Never got in a hurry. And I've thought about this Christmas season and we'll hear about it and we'll sing about it and we'll celebrate it with the living Christmas tree. We'll preach about the peace of God which passes all understanding. There's something else I need to apply to my life and maybe you do to yours. We need to apply the pace of God. Not only the P-E-A-C-E, but the P-A-C-E. The pace of God. Keep the motor running all the time in your automobile, even when it's sitting in the garage, and you never turn it off. Sooner or later, it's going to run into trouble. The same thing will happen to us. God, give us not only your peace, but your pace through this hectic season.
and all the hectic seasons of life. Well, for some reason, because of what he did, he just went around loving people and creating joy and going to parties. He never, never turned down an invitation to a party. He was just the joyful Christ, the smiling Christ, the ebullient Christ, the positive Christ. But something about that that just created a tremendous hostility on the part of the entrenched ecclesiastical and political powers of the day who looked upon the simplicity of his life as a threat. So they had to get rid of him. They plotted against him, unfairly criticized him, made up stuff, unfair trial, rigged a trial, got him on a cross, killed. Then on the third day, he rose again and went out to tell the world, rejoice, rejoice. We've conquered death. And the grave rejoice. Some man. Some man. After he was grown, he never traveled more than 100 miles from his home. Never rode in an automobile. Never flew in an airplane. Never uh, saw television. Never saw a movie. Never wrote a book. Never painted a picture. Never talked on the telephone. Can you imagine Jesus was once a teenager and he never be able to talk on the telephone? <laughs> Incomprehensible. <laughs> None of those things. And yet, this simple, down to earth, approachable, accepting, inclusive, sandal wearing carpenter from Nazareth has changed the world. And millions of people would gladly die for him today. Millions have. We have business with this man. We must do something with him. What will I do? What will you do with Jesus? Oh, I know there's some. I know there's some. I hear it. I read it. I know it's always been around. That say, well, Buckner, Jesus is wonderful, but there are a lot of wonderful religious groups in the world, and they're all pretty much the same, are they not? No, they're not. Uh, every now and then you'll hear some person who has been educated beyond their intelligence make a ridiculous, <laughs> inane statement like, well, one religion is just as good as another. It doesn't make any difference what a person believes as long as they believe something. Lord, I hope you never make such a statement as that. That is probably the revelation of the most intensive ignorance that a human being could ever, ever, ever utter. It doesn't make any difference what a person believes as long as they believe something. It makes all the difference what a person believes. 
Because the way they believe is the way they behave. In fact, that's where the word belief comes from. Two English words, by life. By life. You want to know what you believe? Look at your life. Look at your life. All religion just as good as another. Well, what about Confucius? Confucianism. Well, Confucius never claimed to be a a prophet uh, or a messiah. All he claimed to be was a... a, uh, Political commentator, a social commentator, an evaluator of the, of the current scene. Well, what uh, I keep reading about and hearing about people getting interested in Buddhism. Gautama, the Buddha, the enlightened one. Do you know the basic tenet of, of, uh, of Buddhism? The basic belief, the basic thrust of, uh, of Buddhism is the complete... This is the eventual, what you're able to do eventually, if you're a good Buddhist, the eventual total annihilation of all desire. That's it. That's Buddhism at its best. The annihilation of all desire. All evil comes because we desire things. When you never hear that from Jesus... Now, unfortunately, there are some Christians who occasionally in their so-called spiritual development spill over into some Buddhist attitudes about spiritual maturity and think you're supposed to destroy all of these desires. You're supposed to uh, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically emasculate yourself. No, every desire you have is a gift of God. He created us that way. And what Jesus Christ has come to do is not to annihilate our desires, but to redirect our desires into positive and creative channels rather than negative and destructive channels. Jesus did not come to get rid of our headache by cutting off our heads. He came to create a whole new power of energy using all the desires we have for accomplishment for relationship, for creativity, for love, to create, to take all of those creative desires, those urges, and use them for the glory of God and the welfare of other people. But Buddhism is the very antithesis of that. It's the annihilation of all desire. And if you are a good Buddhist, you make it to Nirvana, the name for heaven, where there you have, quote, the bliss of nothingness. The bliss of nothingness. Hinduism. Millions of Hindus in the world. Hinduism with its many gods and its reincarnations and reincarnations and reincarnations. You want to see what Hinduism does to a culture, go to India. It's the curse of India, where the cow is a god in a starving nation, where the cow is a god, and where the wooden plow is an object of worship with magical powers. Hinduism, reincarnation. I hear about and read about folks who believe in reincarnation. Maybe you do. I don't. Don't believe the Bible teaches it, but there's some people who believe they're 
in reincarnation. I heard a story about two fellows who believed in reincarnation and uh, they agreed that whichever one died first, if possible, would get back in touch with the living one to tell him, you know, where he had, what he had become, you know, whether he'd become Napoleon or Wellington or whatever, you know, Shakespeare, whatever, whatever you're going to be reincarnated to be and to do. So one of them died and the other thought, oh, I just hope he's able somehow through a dream or through a vision somehow to get back in touch with me because I'd like to know where he is and what he's doing. And in the middle of the night, his friend came to him in a vision. The voice spoke to him. His friend, the living one, awakened So excited to hear from his departed friend. Oh, it's wonderful to hear from you. What are you doing? He said, oh, let me tell you. It's marvelous. There is just this beautiful green grass, this endless meadow of profuse grass. More food than you could ever want to eat. It's magnificent. Wonderful, peaceful place, running streams, surrounded by these marvelous snow-capped mountains. It's just fantastic. And his friend said, the living one said, oh, oh, I didn't know heaven was like that. And his friend said, who said I was in heaven? I'm a cow in Colorado. Well, you can be a cow in Colorado if you want to be. I don't choose to subscribe to Hinduism and Islam, Mohammedanism, probably the most debilitating, destructive, oppressive religion in the world. Where you can have four wives and you propagate your faith by the sword. You kill people to convert them. You convert them at the point of a gun. Again, the very antithesis of the message of Jesus Christ. And look at Islam and look what it does to women. The most degrading religion in the world as far as women are concerned. And then you put Jesus beside those. Confucius, Buddha, Hinduism, Islam, Mohammedanism. Zoroastrianism, animism, go on and on and on and on. For me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, the Lord God. Someone says, well, Bugner, that all sounds well and good, and I believe Christianity is good for the unenlightened and the uneducated, but I like facts. Science, that's my thing. That's what I believe in. Well, I believe in it too. I believe it's a gift of God, frankly. And I've been the recipient of some good scientific help in the last few weeks. And I'm grateful for that and grateful for people who feel called of God to go into the medical professions because I believe they're fulfilling the purpose of God in the world. Because you see, I believe God started all of it in the first place. I believe all medicine is a gift from God. 
And I believe that the very healing capability in the human body is a gift of God. I believe all healing is divine healing. I don't believe there's any other kind. I don't believe in divine healers, but I do believe in divine healing because I believe that's the only way we are healed. Medical science helps keep out infection, but God places within us the capacity to be made well. So what about medical science? Well, you may know or have heard the story of Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis. He lived 150 years ago. He was a doctor in one of the great hospitals of the world in Vienna in the 1800s, 1840s. In the hospital where he was serving, the doctors, of course in those days they never wore rubber gloves or any kind of gloves. The doctors in those days would go and perform autopsies in the different wards. And this Dr. Semmelweis was in charge of one ward, what would be an obstetrician, uh, a ward of women. And the doctors under his uh, jurisdiction or under his supervision uh, would go in and perform autopsies. And then they would come out and they would examine the living patients without washing their hands, without gloves. They would come from performing autopsies to examining women patients. He observed that for about three years and, ha- and began to say there is some reason for this incredible mortality rate. So he decided to force his doctors working under his, his supervision to wash their hands in a basin after they had been performing autopsies before they examined living patients. And so in April of 1847, 57 women died in that one month. 57 women died in that one month in that ward of his. He instituted the washing of hands in a basin in two months later, in June of 1847, one out of 42 women died. In July, one out of 84. The mortality rate went down dramatically, precipitously, while in the other wards, it continued at that horrible rate. You would have thought, well, they'd honor him. They would all imitate him. They would make it a hospital policy. He was saving lives. No, he got fired, forced out of the hospital because of jealous physicians who refused to change, obstinate, knowing it all. So he went back to his home in Budapest and tried to get on the staff of a hospital there. He was rejected. His reputation had preceded him. The rumors about him, the criticisms about him. He wrote a book about it. But he was ridiculed and rejected. And the man died, a broken man, emotionally broken. And he died in a mental institution. If they'd only read the 17th chapter of the book of Numbers, 4,000 years ago, God told Moses to tell the people, after you have handled a dead body, 
You are to wash your hands, not out of a basin. You are to wash your hands with running water. And then you are to expose them to the light, to the sun. You are to wash them again. You are to wash all of the clothes that you have on and completely change your clothing before you are able to touch a living body. Exactly what doctors do today in the hospital, God ordained for thousand years ago because he knew that's the way to perpetuate life. One other example. When God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to circumcise Isaac, the child of promise. I want you to circumcise him on the eighth day. Why did God tell Moses to circumcise Isaac on the eighth day? Well, when a little baby boy is born, he has a combination of all kinds of chemicals inside of him. Many of them uh, the result of his mother's immune system that he has. And then he begins to take on and develop his own. And he has vitamin K, which is a blood coagulant. And prothrombin, which is another blood coagulant. Both of those are a part of that little baby's physical makeup. When the baby is born, he has about 50% of the vitamin K and prothrombin, which he needs to coagulate blood. You look at a graph of it. On the third day, it drops down to about 30%. And then on the eighth day of that little baby boy's life, the combination of vitamin K and prothrombin explodes to 110% of the blood coagulant within his body, more than he will ever have any other day in his life. How did God know that? <laughs> Say, but Bugner, did God study chemistry? God created chemistry. Did God study hematology? God created hematology. Did God study anatomy? He made us out of mud. He knows us. Did God go to medical school? He invented medical school. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Want to believe science? Believe it. Thank God for it. It's a gift of God. And I believe all the marvelous medical discoveries that are being made and how marvelous they are for our day. I believe all of those are revelations of God through dedicated minds, evaluating and utilizing qualities that are already existent in the universe for the welfare of his people. God started it all and he did it because he loved us. Well, I need to conclude. Let me say a word. A group of uh, famous literary figures were together in England. And this is a marvelous story out of uh, English literature history. And Charles Lamb, an English essayist, 
was writing about it and describing the group of people who were in the room. And they were talking about the great, uh, the great writers. And he said, if Shakespeare were to walk into this room, we would all stand and applaud. If Dante walked into this room, we would all stand and applaud. If Milton and Browning walked into this room, we would all stand and applaud. But if Jesus walked into this room, we'd all fall on our knees in adoration of him. Well, he's in this room. He's in this very room. And we've got to do something with him. What will you do? Tell you what I've done. With as much of myself as I understand and as much of God as I comprehend by faith, I trust him. I'm not trusting the fact that I'm a preacher or I'm a Baptist or that I believe the Bible. My faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not my morality. Whatever I may have is a gift from him. Whatever I know, a gift from him. I've trusted him. And I've given him my case. And I put my life in his hands. For you see, I really do believe that he's God in human flesh. Those words we read earlier from the second chapter of Philippians. This mind, this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow things in earth and things under the earth and things above the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My tongue confesses him as my Lord. I believe, I believe that the stars chime that message. I believe these, I believe these flowers breathe that message. I believe the redeemed celebrate this message. I believe the angels of God rise from their thrones on wings of light to announce it. He is God. He is God. Put your faith and trust in him. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. What will you do with him? Will you trust him as your savior? Will you trust him 
with the dedication of your life to him. Being a Christian, would you say this morning, Lord, I want to be more like you. I want more of your spirit within me, more of your attitudes to permeate me. Oh, Lord, I want to be a part of your church. The only institution Jesus established was a church. The only thing he established was a church. And the Bible says that he loved it and gave himself for it, which means that I should love it and give myself to it. Maybe you need to do that today. What will you do with Jesus and his church that he loved? What will you do? I urge you to trust him. I urge you to come make whatever decision the Spirit of God is impressing you to make. I urge you to join this church if God is impressing you to do that. I'll be standing right down here to greet you. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Everybody, upstairs and downstairs, we're not going to stand. We're not going to sing. I just want you, as God's Spirit speaks to you, remember, He's walking up and down these aisles here today and looking into each and every one of our hearts. And he is saying, what will you do with me? What are you doing with me? And I hope and pray that you'll just say in your heart, yes, Lord, I trust you. Yes, Lord, I want to follow you. Yes, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. Without anybody looking in the quietness and stillness of this moment, just stand to your feet and come. I'll be here to greet you. Just stand and come.